Go ahead and turn to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. So the title of today's teaching is very, it came to me yesterday evening. I, I typically will go through and work on a message, and then as we get to the end of preparing the message, I'll just pray about whatever it is that God's working on, whatever the, the, the theme or the collection of, of points that God's talking about are. And the title is Responding to Grace. Responding to the grace of God, because God's grace is always around us. That's something that we have to realize, but we don't, but it is always around us. It's our job to respond to it. It's our job to, to take whatever it is that God's giving and respond to it. Now, we can respond to it the wrong way. We can push it away because it doesn't match what we think it should match, whatever it is. But responding to grace, here's, here's the problem. In order to reject grace, we look like fools, we absolutely look like crazy people. Here's an example. I walk up to you. You're watching the news of the winning lottery numbers. I have the ticket. I hand it to you. You see that the numbers match. And you say, no, 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 no dude. I'm going to get my own ticket. I don't want your handouts. The first thing that I do if I'm standing next to him is I punch that guy in the back of the head and I take the ticket because he's a dumb person. You don't give away the lottery ticket that's been given to you, a brand new one. It just doesn't make sense. When we, when we reject grace, we have to go into stupid land. Or like I like to call it when my kids are being crazy, I call it Full Fest 2017. In a couple of weeks, it'll be Full Fest 2018. Whenever we get in this thing where we're responding to God in, in, in a lack of responding to his grace and in a response of disobedience, we, we choose foolishness. So when I think of our world today and the response to God's grace, here's two things I want us to realize an executive that used to be involved with, I believe it was Uber, has started a brand new church. You can look this up. It was on, uh, I can't remember which financial magazine it was, but it's called the Church of Artificial Intelligence. Dead serious. It's already been formed for several years now. It's uh, uh, got all its financial filings have happened already. You can actually go and, and look over them. It's the Church of AI, and here's the goal over the next two or three years. They're creating their own God in artificial intelligence. They're creating it. They're, th- all the members get to be involved in creating the attributes in this artificial intelligence, and then they will present it to be worshipped and to serve them how they want to be served. This is a quote from, from the guy who's starting the church. Big exec, big financial person. You'd never think that, he would, that you would have a nut job involved in that kind of thing. But he is. Very, very serious about it all. And, and the thing is, is that exact phrases from the minor prophets are used by him. It, we're going to create the God from our own imagination in our hearts. Sound like Jeremiah? In Hosea, we're going to read today where he says that by, the, by their own hands, they formed the gods, and, or sorry, formed idols from the materials they had. By their own hands, forming a god by the materials they have in artificial intelligence. 
Now, we laugh at it, and some of us might think, hey, that's kind of cool. Some of us might think that's insane. Some of us might get goosebumps, whatever it is. But it doesn't feel crazy to this person who still is seeking for a God to rule over their life because that's how he was designed. But in the response to grace, you have to be a fool to say no, and so he looks like one. Next thing, uh, just yesterday, a brand new study came out. You can, you can Google this. Record numbers of traditional uh, religion followers dropping, increasing. You know, you know where the numbers are going to? Or you know where they're increasing? Witchcraft. All different forms. Now, we'll, we'll define witchcraft. A lot of us think of a broom and all that different stuff. Really, the, the, the biblical definition of witchcraft is drug use. It's the actual using of, of things to change your state to connect with the spiritual world. Another way the Bible talks about things that we would call witchcraft is divination, where we would force the spiritual realm to be involved in our life and to do things for us. So there's two pieces of that, really, from a biblical and spiritual perspective. This is what we do when we don't respond to grace. Now, those are extreme forms that I gave as an example. But every single one of us this week said no to God's grace, said no to obeying him, said no to his love, and chose our own way. In small ways or big ways, we did. We missed his grace. The reason I started with that is because we're going to read two chapters in Hosea this morning, and we're going to go through that. And what I want us to see, just like a couple weeks ago when we had that, that series titled or, or sermon titled, Exits on the Highway to Hell, I want us all to see grace opportunities, call them grace doors, whatever they're called. And when you go through and read the Minor Prophets, Maybe you, maybe you don't mark in your Bible. If you don't, start doing it. There's nothing holy about the paper. It's what it does in our hearts. But if you go through the minor prophets and you grab a specific colored marker and you pick that color to say, these are the exits from judgment to get God's grace, you will run out of room. You are going to be highlighting everywhere and you will miss, I missed it, how much of God's grace is all over those judgment discussions he has. It's judgment, 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 but. Judgment, 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 but. Judgment, 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 but. You know what the but is? But you can come back to me. You can step into wrath, which I don't want you to be there, but you also have a way out to come to me. That's his story the whole time. So Hosea chapter 12, we're starting right there in verse 1. Let's read some verses together here. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and ruin. Also, they make a covenant or a treaty with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. That all makes sense, right? Chasing wind, oil, Assyrians. We can just move to the next verse because it all makes sense. No, we're reading a book written by ancient Hebrews. Let's understand what they're talking about here. The east wind. What I love how the, the Lexham English Bible puts this, says that Ephraim herds the wind. Can you imagine? I mean, I thought herding cats was difficult. Imagine trying to herd wind. How are you going to get your arms around that wind? You're not going to. You're not. But here's, here's the reality of it, though. This wind picture is always a picture, especially the east wind, of judgment. So not only... Are they foolishly going after, but they're actually trying to find ways to gather up more judgment by their lifestyle. They're saying no to the grace, no to the obedience, and saying, 
yes to all this judgment. And let's gather some more judgment. I love collecting judgment. Have you seen my jar of judgment over here? I've got a whole collection, one for every day. That's what he's saying you're doing. And then he says here in the next part of the verse, pursues the east wind. It's like they're running after judgment. It's like hurt me and hurt me now. When God said, here's the exit. Here's the exit. He daily increases lies and ruin or desolation, which is just a horrific word. They make a covenant with the Assyrians and they try and make peace with Egypt by bringing olive oil. What that means is that they're going to every earthly person around them to try and make peace except for their creator who they first sinned against. Man, don't we do that? I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine and, and we were both getting kind of frustrated with each other and, and I, just, I challenged him. I said, why don't you just really get serious about God in your life and just, just promise me for a month, just start your day in prayer with him. Just, just do that for a month. Because he really said, he was like, I really, I'm a Christian, I love God and all this stuff, but there was no, no fruit. So three days later, he comes into work, and, and um, he agreed. I could ask him how it was, and, and I said, so how was your morning this morning? He goes, oh, it, was, it was weird. I said, what was it? He goes, well, I was praying, and I felt like God told me to go take all my cigarettes and throw them away. I said, awesome. He goes, yeah, I just really couldn't do it. So I prayed again, and, 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 he, and, and he said it again, and I said, okay, so did you do it? He goes, no, but I decided to pray for my daughter that passed away three years ago. When we say no to obeying God, we make really foolish decisions to get away from it. Praying for a dead daughter doesn't make sense. He wasn't even Catholic. There's not even a religious connection for him to do it. It's just weird. And so when we respond to God's grace, or we respond to trying to make peace with things around us in this world, when we don't have a problem with this world... We totally miss out on the grace opportunity with our God. And I want us to, to, to go through and, and, and think about that question this morning. And I want us to think about this all the way through. We see these grace opportunities. Ask yourself this. How do I respond to grace? Because we might look at the lottery ticket thing and say, ah, that's easy. If I had that come to me, I'd say yes, thank you, and cry. But what about the other areas of Grace. The little ones here and there that we miss. Maybe some of us today are still trying to pay for our mistakes and our sins that we've made going, no, 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 God, I'll I'll take care of this one. Let me just make it very clear that God's love is not a condition based on us. It's based on him. That's why we can fail over and over and over again and still come to him because his grace, his love is based on his character, not ours. He's not shallow and conditional like humans. You mess up around me, then I'm probably going to make fun of you, record it, and then tag you on YouTube or something. It's, we're, we're not nice people. No, even the nicest person in here still can think up some great pranks. But God's love, the reason we can always come back to him is because his love is based on him, not us. That's why we can always come back. His grace is something we can always respond to. And I want us to realize something as we... Get ready to go into to verse 2. Here's two, a broken apart statement I want us to realize. Number one, second chances mean that we received grace. Realize that. When we get a second chance, and it could be the 100th second chance we get, that means we got grace. Recognize it. Recognize it and say thank you to God. And live a life of thankfulness. 
But here's the next part of it. Because just because we get grace, just because we've received this, this acceptance that, that didn't depend on me and my performance, but depended upon my God, it doesn't mean that the sin is less evil or dangerous. Getting grace doesn't minimize the evil. It doesn't change the nastiness. That's why Paul, who's going through and discussing about grace and sin, and he goes, hey, listen, the more I sin, the more grace. But should we continue just sinning and sinning and sinning so we can get more grace? No. Sin is a horrific thing. It is a disease. And it's, it's saying a statement like that going, well, you know, God forgave me, so I'm just going to keep going until it hurts me. That's like licking a toilet seat in a public bathroom, not getting sick and saying, well, I'm just going to do it again because I didn't get sick. It's disgusting the first time we did it. Half of us are all kind of dry heaving right now. But that's what sin is. We taste and look at the world. Well, it didn't hurt that bad. Let me try it again. No, grace and forgiveness comes to us. It's, and because it comes to us, it doesn't mean God's okay with that. It means God said, listen, I'll forgive you for it and enable you to live a life for me. But you still have to make the choice for me every time. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. You can underline according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He will return to him based on his deeds. Now, you'll see that picture with God's judgment. And it, it, it's not just opposite. It's, it's other dimensional compared to God's grace. See, God's judgment always, the punishment always fits the crime with God. Always. If you want what you deserve, go seeking God's judgment because that's what we will get. We always get what we deserve when it comes to God's judgment. But when it comes to God's grace, we never get what we deserve. It doesn't make sense. God is complete in his justice and his judgment. But when we get into his grace, there's no longer any of that wrath on top of us. That's why you've got Romans 8.1. You've got all these discussions in Romans 6 and 7 related to grace. And, and why does this make sense to me? I, I can't get over my flesh. I can't do all this. But, but praise God for Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense. But it doesn't have to. I love having the grace. And I've had that before. I've had that time where I've been on my face, the floor is wet from tears, and I'm like, God, this doesn't make sense. I hate me. I can't stand me. And the response from God is, get over it. I still love you. I still love you. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense. I know. You can accept it or not. You can accept it or not. That's all. We need to respond to God's grace. See, I want us to realize an interesting paradigm. When we're on the inside of God's will and relationship, we don't get what we deserve. Amen to that. Man, the ways that he blesses us and works in our life, it it doesn't make sense. I've told you guys a story about when I was working on my truck. I was furious. I couldn't get the part to, to move. I couldn't get anything to work. I walk into my garage. The first thing I see, I kick. The first tool I have on my hand, I throw. I'm turning around. I'm like, this is ridiculous, God. I mean, this is such a waste of time. I turn around right in front of me, literally pinpointed right through the parts of my truck. I see the part I've been looking for to get everything to come undone. And immediately, God had me on my knees saying thank you. And I said, I don't deserve that. In the middle of acting like a complete fool, God says, you're a dork, Joe, but I love you. 
I don't get that. I don't understand it. But here's the other side of it. If we've chosen to walk outside of God's will, if we've chosen to forsake devotion and relationship with him, it gets ugly, and it gets ugly quick. Proverbs and and other areas in parenting call this a circle of blessing within the parent's home, household, and authority. But outside God's will and relationship, we do get what we deserve. And that should scare us to death when we realize what we deserve. I don't want to be outside of God's will. I don't want to be outside of a relationship with him. The, the, the thing is, is that God's wrath is coming down on the sons of disobedience. There's a long theological discussion related to that, but that's not me. I want to be with him. He's not going to pour wrath on himself. I want to be in Christ. His wrath is already poured out on Christ. Now I can live in him anew. That's the life we choose. But if I'm outside of that, then I get what I deserve. And life isn't going well. And if it does go well, it's probably because you've got a Christian next to you and they're getting blessings and you're just getting splashed. I want to drown in it. I don't want splashes. I remember seeing that at a, a place that I was working. Before I'd gotten there, I was the only uh, Christian that was there. Another guy got hired, another Christian got there, and the company began to boom. Within a short time of us leaving, socially, the company just began to kind of be very awkward. They brought in another partner. He ended up getting let go of because of abuse of employees. And just these, these things started going on, and the ethics began to decrease, and just you could tell that there was something wrong or something different in there. And my buddy who had left a little bit after me, he says, Joe, I didn't realize this, but I think God had his hand on that company because we were there. And I believe that's the case sometimes. But man, I don't want to be in the splash zone. I want to be in the water. I don't want to sit there and go, hey, that was a nice sip of the glory of God. I want to be drowning in it, just filling up all inside of me. There's no other place. There's no better place. And I want us to realize this, that while God's judgment is performance-based, how we act, what we do, we receive payment for that. It's an equal trade. You want this, here's what it costs. But here's the beauty of God's grace. It's not performance-based. There's nothing we can do to get God to love us at first or love us again or love us at all. He already does. Boom. It's not performance-based. How did I do today, God? Well, you got a 97%. You're going to get almost all of my love. No. And when we fall and we slide face first on the carpet and get up and half our nose is gone, God doesn't say, well, you got to clean that act up. I'm not dealing with that trash for right now. No, he's the one who picks us up. And we say, God, I, you know, let, me, let me just take care of this. Let me fix this. Let me, let me do what I need to do so that I'm worthy of you. And he says, there is nothing you can do to be worthy of me. Now, we can take that statement from God and get frustrated and go, well, that's not fair. I mean, there's nothing I can do to get right with you, God? No, there's not. I just want you, and I'll make you right with me. Now, there's a series of next steps involved in that life because we respond to him. We want to obey him. The one we love becomes the one we don't want to hurt. And that relationship builds and changes. I don't want it to sound like cheap grace, but every day we have to understand and and deal with the fact that God's grace is around us. Verse 3 of chapter 12 keeps going. And and, and let me just kind of give a a, a background to this. There's There's a a picture here that's happening in Hosea 12. God's using the picture of the patriarchs, the people that these, these Jews kind of worshipped almost, and looked back on them and said, 
You know, they, they, they're the ones who started us. They really loved and believed in the, in, in, in the power of, of these people doing something in the past that affected their personal future, which is pretty foolish, unfortunately. So now God comes in and says, talking about Jacob, he took his brother by the heel in the womb. And in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. And there he spoke to us. And, and, and you can see here grammatically there's this kind of stop. There's, there's a stop where you can almost see Hosea repeating what God said going, and he spoke to us. The Lord God of hosts, he spoke to us. He's saying, listen, Jacob, yes, Jacob was foolish. Jacob was a man who tried to undercut things, tried to make life happen his way, tried to forget the grace and make it happen through effort. But even then, he broke. He broke and God spoke to him. It's all that he's asking. It's all that he's asking. The Lord God of hosts, of heaven's armies, spoke. And so in verse 6 it says this, So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. Return. Yeah, you're struggling. You're going against. You're trying to do life your own way. You're trying to put in effort and think that that's going to do anything for you in your life. Spiritually. I want you to return. I want you to live a life based on action my way, not yours. And I want us to realize that God's saying here, listen, I I will bring you to your end so I can have you. And he says that to each of us today. Whenever it is, whatever chapter of our life that it's in, God has no problem bringing us to our end if that means he can have us. Now, that's not something that makes sense to us. Us as parents, sometimes, we are the worst. Our kid starts to suffer, and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll give them five seconds to suffer. But the second that they start whining again, we grab them, pull them out of the fire and consequences, and set them up and give them a cookie and act like life should be okay. And we're dead wrong for doing that. I had someone talking to me at work a couple weeks back, and he's talking to me about a friend of his that every time he paid money for him to do something, he would, he would use it for drugs and women. And he just had this pattern, this pattern, this pattern with his friend, and, and, and he looked at me. He was trying to bait me into a conversation. He thought I was just going to jump on board and say, well, your friend's a, uh, an idiot. You shouldn't be giving money away or anything. I said to him, I said, listen, I believe in two things. I believe that if God tells us to, we do it, and we let God take care of the money and the problem in that person. But sometimes God also wants us to feed the ditch. And he said, you, you want them to die? I said, no. Sometimes people won't listen to the grace of God until they're at the very bottom of their life. And sometimes they need to be there to know what it takes to let go of everything and grab hold of God. I said, but it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. And, and, and I believe that. This is what's being said here. Is, listen, get to your end. Return right now. I don't have to bring you all the way to the very end of even taking your life so you come back to me. I don't have to do that, he says. Just return right now. Come to your end on your own right now. Humble instead of be humbled, he says. He gives him the option. Well, I want us to realize this, and I kind of just said it as I went through that story, is that we don't have to be brought to our end. We don't have to. We don't. But here's, here's the connection I want us to make, is that we do have to be there to start with God. 
We have to be at the end of ourselves. whether we bring ourselves there and say, God, I can't do it, or we have to be on our face and say, God, I proved I couldn't do it. There's two ways to come to God, but we have to be at our end. We have to be at our end. But the beauty is, is we don't have to be brought there. Return, act. I love that word there. Wait on is a Hebrew word. It's actually hope. Have hope in your God continually. Verse 7. Some of your translations may say Canaanite. Uh, A little bit better, more generic word is actually just tradesman or merchant. A cunning merchant. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. I don't know if you understand what this means, but deceitful scales have to do with the fact that they would, they would counterbalance some of the scales so that your, your food that you would purchase, the weight of your spices and your fruits and vegetables would weigh more, and so you would, they would charge you more for less product. Kind of like the chip bags. When you open them up, they're all the way down to the bottom and smashed. Packed by weight, not volume. What is it, like half an ounce of chips you put in here? Anyways... I remember the first time they changed it over. Don't you, does anybody ever remember when chip bags used to be full? Anybody? Oh, man. <laughs> That's targeting, Joe. You can't do that. Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. That's a direct opposition to some of what God said on how they should work. They should have had their scales in the opposite, being people who gave grace. Ephraim said, surely I've become rich. I've found wealth for myself in all my labors. And they're going to find no iniquity in me, this sin. You know what he's saying here? He's arrogant. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I've gotten rich and no one's caught me, so it's not wrong. But none of us have ever said that before, ever, right? I mean, that's, I mean it's not speeding unless you get a ticket. <laughs> a couple nervous laughs. It's not running a stop sign unless they see you. See, being guilty. This is what God's saying. He's like, listen, you you have an exit out. God gives us guilt. He built us and designed us to have guilt in us so that we're drawn to the one who can remove the guilt. So that we're drawn to the one who can clean that up and get rid of it. So he says, even with your guilt, you look at it and say, well, no, it's not really guilt because I haven't got caught yet. I haven't got struck by lightning, so it can't be that wrong. Well, I want us to realize, and again, I've kind of gone through it all, but a point is that we don't actually have to be caught to be guilty. We have to have done something wrong to be guilty. Done. And no one has to have seen it. No one has to have known it. But our God does. And sin, here's something that's, that's kind of sick about sin. Sin hurts us whether someone else saw it or not. Now, the guilt may increase because other people are involved. We may do something foolish in front of someone that's very sinful, and, 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 and other people may see us and, and judge us and say, dude, you shouldn't have done that. What's going on with you there? And we feel more guilt because of that. And that's very good sometimes because sometimes some of us need that. But then there's the other side of it all that when we do it and we look over our shoulder and we're like, man, no one was looking. But what do we do with that guilt? Do we still bring that sin to God? Or do we hide it away and go, no one saw that? And move on. No, sin is still a disease. Sin is still a poison. Sin still kills and destroys and ruins everything. 
whether someone else saw us do it or not. It's knowing we've done wrong that makes us guilty, not someone else seeing it. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. But I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feasts. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols or parables through the witness of the prophets. You have had so many chances to see where you're wrong. You have had so many opportunities, so many opportunities to see it. But here's what I love is that God, and actually what was noted in Nehemiah, it says that they had forgotten, they had forsaken the festivals of God that reminded them to be dependent upon God. Dwell in tents goes back to a festival, a feast of tabernacles, feast of booths. There's all different names that people have brought it forward all. But, but here's the simple purpose of it all. It was that they were to leave everything that made their life how it was and remember that all they had was the provision of God in the wilderness. They, they literally had a shack made of plant scraps all their food, all their protection, all their covering, all their purpose, all their wisdom, all their vision, everything came from God in that wilderness. And what brought them to that wilderness was a lack of devotion in the first place, a lack of faith in the first place. And so God says, listen, I am not afraid, I am not unwilling to bring you to a point where you have nothing else to depend on but me again. I will do that. I will do that. And he did. And they did wander as they were captured. But what it did is it forced them. It forced them to see who their God was, that remnant that he saved out of judgment. And I want us to realize that even God's saying, and and you can see this, how do I respond to grace? Even God's saying, I'll make you dwell in tents. You know what that means? That means I'm going to remove every distraction from your life so that all you can see is me. And if you can't decide me then, there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing else. Yahweh is a God of many chances, not just second chances. Many. That doesn't make sense, Joe. I, I, I've, I've really been a good Christian person most of my life, and I don't understand why someone can come and spit in the face of God and God still says I love them. Well, you just spat in God's face because you're not perfect. Neither am I. You know who I was quoting just then? Me. We all get self-righteous. We all look at the situation. When we see someone else responding to God's grace, and we look at it and go, well, that's not fair. We're just not responding to the grace that's around us. That doesn't mean we're not getting it. Realize that. We're just not responding to it. It's there. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. This is, this is such a sad picture here. Though... Gilead, remember, Gilead is the place where they began this this covenant together, where God began to to establish his people and create a memorial with the 12 stones. Though Gilead has idols, surely they're worthless. Though they sacrifice bulls and Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the fields. Some translators actually believe that this wasn't a destruction word, but it was um, an insulting phrase, that, that they have so many altars to these other gods that it looks like furrows in the field. There's so many of these altars piled up to sacrifice to other gods that it looks like furrows in the field, just rows of other god worship. At the place where they began, 
at the place where they started. That's like your spouse going to cheat on you where you went on your honeymoon. It's like, this is where our relationship began, and you're cheating on me with these other gods. That's what he's saying here. It's hard. It's hard to read these things. Verses 12, 13, and 14 are comparative. Now, verse 12 says, hey, listen, this is how Jacob operates. This is how you're operating in your flesh. But this is how I want to operate, he says, by profit, by, your, by my truth. And then verse 14 shows the outcome. Let's read that together. The, uh, verse 12, Jacob fled to the country of Syria. He was a runner. Things got hard. He bailed. He was a trickster. Israel served for a spouse, used works to get something. And for a wife, he tended sheep. Now here's the comparison. Going from Jacob, going from that fleshly lifestyle, you have verse 13 that says, by a prophet, and let me just define a prophet if you haven't heard it before. A prophet is not someone who comes around telling the future. A prophet is simply this, someone who speaks the truth of God. That's it. So if you go here and read this, the prophet, by a prophet, remember, it's comparative language here, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. You guys were running. You had to be tricksters to get just a wife. I brought you from the most powerful war-controlling nation of all. By a prophet. You can have your trickster. You can have your effort. You can have your works. But I bring someone who's speaking simply my truth, and I deliver you from the most powerful nation ever to existed. He's comparing here of their choices, choosing the way of God or choosing their own ways. And here's what he says. He, may, he shows their choice, their rejection of grace. Verse 14 says this, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave on him his blood guilt. He had the chance to get rid of his guilt, but he didn't take it. And so it's stuck on him now. It's there. And return his reproach upon him. The nastiness that came out of the nation of Israel on their God bounces back on them in judgment. But it didn't have to happen that way. I want us to realize something. Verse 12 to 14 really, really hit me. And you'll see that point up here. When we don't respond to God's grace... We sit and we repeat the same old sins over and over and over and over again. And here's the sick part of it. When we've seen the potential for grace, the, the, the need to silence that grace, it requires more sin the next time to cover the grace and more sin. We have to, if we've experienced even just the tiniest bit, just a glimpse of grace, we have to sin so much harder to shut that grace up in our life. That's why a lot of times I've talked with many different people over the years, and they said, Joe, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Why, after I've come to Christ, when my flesh comes back, I am worse of a person than I ever was before Christ? That's because in order to quench and quiet the grace and the Spirit of God working in our life, we have to sin hard. Now, there is no sinning hard enough to quiet it, but we'll try. We will try, and we will try, and we will try, and we will try. And the pain gets worse and worse and worse. Why? Because sin hurts when our life is made new. And it should. It should. 
when we don't respond to his grace, we just sit and we repeat and we wallow around in the sin there. You know, verse 13 talks about the prophet, and I want to say this, that God designed us all to be led by his spirit and truth. That was the design that we were built in. He, he built us, and, and, and think of it like a little toy at Christmas. When we're putting the wrong batteries into that toy, what happens? It doesn't work right. If we're putting the wrong thing into us, it's, our life isn't going to work right. That doesn't mean that all life is easy as soon as you decide to put Christ inside of you, but it does mean that your life will work right. And in the situations when it is hard, there's still hope. There's still a future. And I want us to see this here when he talks about by a prophet. The word there is deliverance, salvation. And it only comes by Yahweh. Only God's truth and ways can deliver us. There's no other formula or or thing we can do that, you know, I'm going to be gooder today than I was yesterday. It doesn't matter. Guess what? We've all tried it. And sometimes we are for a day or so. And when we keep trying to be gooder and gooder and gooder, and then it seems after a week of being the gooderest person we've ever been, all it takes is one person to just go, and man, we can unload. I mean, we're breathing fire, shooting bullets out of our fingertips. I mean, we're shooting lasers out of our eye. We are nasty. We're like, I was just the goodest person I've ever been all week. Where did that come from? That's what happens when we store up ourselves in ourselves. When we're not living by the power of God or the power of the Spirit in our life. Let's start on chapter 13 now. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. Let's, let me explain what's happening in that. Ephraim was the most powerful tribe. When they would speak, when they would say something, people had reverence for what they said. Why? Because God had gifted them with strength and skills and power. And so when they spoke, there was trembling. Now, there was a choice that Ephraim had. That tribe could have said, man, I, I, listen, trust me, I'm more gifted. That just means I have to be more humble, okay? I, I did not do this on my own. Follow me as I follow God. But no, they didn't. People trembled and they go, you're right, I am amazing. Almost forgot. And then when they filled themselves up with pride and with themselves, they got lower and lower and lower. Talked a little bit about that. But it's, it's a little bit interesting. When we get in this mode of thanking ourselves for how awesome we are and not our creator, For the gifting he gave us, we've displaced God. We've removed him from our life. The second that we go, you know what? You're right. I am that good. We've said, God, we don't need you. I don't don't need you here. Don't, Don't want you around. Well, no, no, I've never said that. Not directly. I know I've done it plenty of times. I've spent many years believing that I was the best person I've ever met. And I wouldn't mind telling other people that too. And if you don't believe it, I'll just tell you again until you do, or leave me alone. The irony is is that the more gifted a person is, the more reason that they have to be humble, not prideful. The more giftings that God gives to someone, the more strengths, even the more visible giftings, the more opportunity, the more requirement to be humble there are. 
than there is to be prideful. It's a bit ironic because the world looks at it differently. The more gifted the person is, what do we do? We put them on pedestals. We put them on the morning show. We put them in movies. We put them as headliners. They get money. They get worship. They get everything. And they have nothing to do with their gifting and skills. But man looks at it and puts it on a pedestal, worships it. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. This is almost a, a little bit of an insult again. Oh, oh, your silver, your skill. You mean, you mean the silver I gave you? The, the elemental structure I created? The skills you have? Did you go through a line inside of the uterus and go, well, I want to be good at this and this and this, and then put it inside of you as you grew? No, God created us. But he's being almost facetious here. All of it is the work of craftsmen. It's just simply craftsmen's work. And then they say to them, the people who are building these things, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Here's actually what this is saying. Let those who commit human sacrifice kiss these idols. Human sacrifice was used to worship some of these other gods. Infants. Talk about post-birth abortion. That's exactly what it was. And so anybody who was involved in that, kissing of those calves, those bulls, those, those idols, was not just simply, oh, we're going to kiss it and dance around and have fun. Kissing was a cultural symbol. It was something that they believed and grew up in that was a sign of devotion and loyalty. And you had to have it come out of your heart to commit that loyalty. That's why God's saying everything inside of you and outside of you is not loyal to me. You are not devoted to me. You're not committed to me. Let everyone who's involved in human sacrifice kiss the calves. Come, take these idols, take them home so you can continue to worship these gods while you're at home and you're not here at these altars. But then verse 3. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. He's saying, listen, guys, you're going to be gone. I'm glad God's not okay with evil. I'm glad he's not okay with it. I know a lot of people look at this, and and the world would look at this and just be, "What, what a hateful, vengeful God. Can't they just make their own decisions about that? Absolutely not. He does not allow that. There is a responsibility to be taken for their actions. But I didn't look, wake up to a silver cow next to my bed this morning. I don't know if anybody else did. If you're married, be careful. But we all have areas in our life where we kiss the cow. We all do. Again, men, be very careful right now. Don't even look over at your wife right now because you will get slapped. I want to ask the question, how do we kiss the calves today? How does this apply to us today? Where in our heart do we relate? Because these are humans, and last I checked, raise your hand if, you're, if you is a human in here today. Seven, eight? There are some super or subhumans in here. We're all human in here, okay? So, so how do we kiss the calves today? Well, actually, I, I think one of the ways we do it, and you can see it up on the screen, is that we will use any excuse to skip a time to be with God's people. 
Whatever it is, Bible study, uh, uh, church services, uh, going hanging out at the Christian's house, uh, uh, events that happen, we will use any excuse. I'm tired. I'm not tired. It's sunny. It's cloudy. um, I'm breathing extra oxygen this morning. I don't really feel like it. See, those are first world options we have. They're first world chances that we get. I remember in, in, when I did some missions work in Haiti, I remember sitting on a taxi riding with a lady who rode three hours every single Sunday and Wednesday to go to a church service because where her village was, all they had was either voodoo or nothing. Three hours on a taxi alone with other men there, high degree of rape, high degree of sexual crimes in that country just so she could go to the one church that taught grace there in Port-au-Prince. And I looked and I said, I'm embarrassed to say I'm a Christian. Because just a few weeks before that, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to watch the service online. How dare I? I need to be with those people who I love. I need to be with those Christians. And, and, and I don't know what God's going to do with me, but no matter what, I'm going to get there. Whatever it is, a Bible study, a friend that needs a coffee, whatever it is, how could we with a God who gave us so much, especially in this first world, drive our own vehicles, miss out on what he would give us. He's gifted us with that. But we kiss the calf by choosing to have our devotion elsewhere, devotion to our own comfort, our own desires. Here's the next way we kiss the calves. We hoard our time. I need to rest a little bit today. I need to rest. I know that person needs something. Here's a classic one that I've done in the past. Hey, if you need any help, let me know. That means I don't really want to do it, but I want you to think I do. You know what says someone really is going to get your help? Here. I made this for you. Well, I don't need it. Yeah, you do. I love that. I love forcing grace on people. There was a guy, he said, he, he, we knew he needed uh, groceries and things, and we called him. He says, no, 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 I don't need anything. So I went to the store, sat there in a cart, and I said, here's what I've got for you. Do you need anything else? No, 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 it's okay. What do you have in your fridge? Oh, I don't know. What do you have in your fridge? Nothing. Okay, good. We spent like almost $500. You guys, here at Rise, bought almost $500 for a man who has nothing and fed him for a month. Praise God for that. But he wouldn't say he wanted anything. And you know what he said to me going, if you need anything, let me know. Nothing. Because I didn't mean it. Now that's convicting. I love talking about all of my problems and issues. We should put a microphone up here. You guys need to come up here now. But we do that. We hoard our time. We hoard our talents. It's like, well, I, 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 know, they, I know they need this thing over here. Boy, that really stinks over there. I should be, you know, I should be changing that tire. They don't know what they're doing, but I might be late to work. What? We hoard our possessions. We know this person might need it, but I've only got one of them. And they've got none. And so we choose to have devotion to our time and kiss it and worship it. We choose to have devotion to our skills and talents because, well, you know, I might be late to this or I might not be able to do that. I'm not talking to anybody specifically. I'm saying the human condition, the problem that we all struggle with. Okay, so don't get me wrong. I'm not pounding on anybody. And if you are feeling like you're getting pounded on, talk to God. Because no one reported anything to me about you. And Frank, God told me. No, there's no Frank here that I know of. But let me be frank with you. Next. Come on. That was, come on. There we go. All right. Next. Here's the one where we, we really 
kiss the calf of comfort. We kiss the calf of our own personal preferences. Is that we will be very faithful in starting the day with news. We will be very faithful starting the day with social media. We will be very faithful starting the day with exercise. We will be very faithful starting the day with food, but not our creator. Got to eat a healthy breakfast. Got to get the exercise in. Got to make sure I know what's going on. Got to make sure I know what happened on the interwebs where everybody's fake. But the God who created us. Man, what's that noise? I can't hear it. Let me turn the video up. And then we go off to our job. We go off to go have our breakfast, whatever it is. And we choose to worship our effort. We choose to do something that says, I don't have devotion to you, God. Well, unless I really need you, then I'm getting up early to pray. Yeah, I do that. But you're a pastor. No, I'm human. Thank you. Someone actually knows I'm human. Or they saw me yesterday. It's so easy for our devotion. To get pushed aside. Verse 4. God begins to make it so clear again. Yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt. You, you, you shouldn't be knowing any other gods. You should not have any affiliation with other gods but me. There is no savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness and the land of great drought. When they had pasture they were filled. They were filled. And their heart was exalted. And they forgot me. I can't even pour out blessings on you when you have need because then you say, never mind, God, don't need you now. So I'll be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road. I will observe them. Remember, he says here, listen, I can fill you up. I can take care of you and everything. Or here's the other option. In the foolish decision to reject God's grace, here is the relationship we have. He is now our judge. Like a lion, like a leopard by the road, I will observe them. Now that's freaky. Anybody ever been in Africa or in an area, maybe out hunting, and you know something was watching you? That is the most terrifying feeling ever when you're being watched by something. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, you're destroyed, but your help is from me. You have help from me. I will be your king. Where is any other? That he may save you in all your cities, and your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. You can't even have it or, or, or you can't even have good things. Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. It's like he's got these packages, these gifts, and he's just stuffing them more and more and more full of sin. And he fills up the jar and he tightens it up and writes a label on it. December 2017 puts it on there and goes, man, we've got so much judgment here, I'm running out of cups. That's what he's saying here. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. We're going to get into this in a second, but let me just share what that means. The picture that they're trying to draw here, the writer here in Hosea, is that Jacob is doing something so crazy and foolish. A, a baby isn't just going to sit there and actually consciously make the decision to not come out at birth time. Birth happens. It's a natural occurrence. Things happen and the baby comes out. He says, listen, Jacob, you're, you're, you're defying logic. 
You, you have an exit into your new life, and you're hanging out going, now nah, I'm going to hang out in here. If you hang out in there, Jacob, you will die. If a baby does not get born, the baby, and often the mother, dies. Now we have cesarean and other things now that help save women's lives because of modern medicine and such. But that is what happened in the past. Baby didn't come out, potentially both died. And so that's the picture that he's using here. He's like, listen, you have an exit from the wrath. You have an exit. It's crushing. It's dying. You have to leave that. The time is up. Get out of that. The wrath is coming. You can leave it, he says. Verse 14, though. Because they chose not to take the exit. The Hebrew here is better stated. Should I ransom them from the power of the grave? Should I, should I provide a way out of the grave? Should I provide a way that they don't have the judgment? The answer is yes, he did provide that way. I will redeem them from death. Now that's a future forward-looking statement. It's available now that they don't have to be in that wrath and that death. Here's the next set of phrases. You might recognize this when Paul brought it up in Corinthians. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. It's actually here in Hosea, the Hebrew is a little more specifically, death, bring on your plagues, bring on your destruction. Now, it's quoted in favor of post-Christ by Paul in Corinthians, but don't, don't let it be twisted because death and grave did have power before that. And he says here, Pity is hidden from my eyes, not because he wanted it to be, but because they chose for it to be. They didn't take the exit, so they can't get pity. Here's pity. Don't want it. Then you don't get it. That's what he's saying. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. That's the judgment. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. That's the judgment. Then his spring shall become dry. That's horrific judgment in a desert. And his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Everything you own, he says, is going to be gone. You're not going to even take it with you. Samaria is held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces. Their women with children ripped open. But it didn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be that way. There's a way out. There's a way out. There's a way out. There's a way out. The whole book of Hosea. Here's the last two points I want us to close with this morning. First one is this. Don't let the consequences of sin ruin you before you say yes to the door of grace. I don't care where any of us are at in our life, whether we've followed Christ for 50 years or 50 seconds, this statement applies. We all allow sin into our life in some way, and God is saying, okay, I want to provide you a way out of that today. I want to provide you a way out. And I want to challenge everyone this morning. You can put your notes away. You can put your Bibles away. Don't let the consequences of sin ruin before we say yes to the door of grace. And, 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 and here's what I want to challenge, because here's, here's the next thought we have, especially as Christians. Some of us came in here like, man, I don't need sunshine outside because I'm so happy myself. And so we, we, we think, okay, I'm going to wait a little bit. Well, here's the thing I want to challenge us with is this, is that we can't abuse the grace of God by waiting and saying, you know what, next time. 
Let me just quote Paul. Should we continue in sin because the grace will be here tomorrow? Good gosh, no, he says. No. Don't miss out on the, t- the, the, the grace of today just because, ah, it'll be here tomorrow. Why not have it today? Every single one of us, you know, some people might look at it and go, wow, this is really heavily evangelistic, Pastor. Every single one of us are confronted with the grace of God every day. We have to respond to it. All of us. Let's bow our heads this morning. Because I want to, I really want everyone here this morning to think. Where? Where have we chosen our devotion to be off? It's why you call it a morning devotion time, because it establishes a devotion to our God. Maybe God's saying, listen, I want to meet with you every morning. And we're saying no. Maybe God is saying, listen, I want you for the first time. Come to me for the first time. I want to pray with you this morning about that. Maybe God is saying, come back to me. Here's another gate. Here's another exit on the highway to hell. Come back to me this morning. I don't care who that is this morning, but I want to pray for that devotion to come back to God this morning. Raise your hand this morning if you want to pray. Amen. 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 Anybody else? Raise your hand and I'll pray with you this morning. Amen. Amen. Have that devotion with God. If you raise your hand, whether physically or in your heart, here's what I want you to just quietly pray. Because it's not the magic of prayer. It's, 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 the, it's the power of our heart speaking with our God. And I want you to pray this with me. God, I'm sorry. Thank you for your love. Thank you that it's not based on me, but based on you. Thank you that your grace is there. Even though I ran as hard and as far as I could. Please forgive me. God, I want to be devoted to you. God, I want to be committed to you. I don't want my comforts. I don't want my fears. I don't want my struggles to be fixed by me. I want you to fix them, God. So I raise my hands and give up and come to the end of me and give it all to you, God. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.